Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 191. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of the Lend at Fintech conference. Today's episode is sponsored by Lendit Fintech USA 2019, the world's leading event in financial services innovation. It's going to be happening April 8th through 9th at Moscone West in San Francisco. We're going to be covering digital banking, blockchain, financial health, and of course, online lending, as well as other areas of fintech. There will be over 5,000 attendees, over 250 sponsors, and registration is now open. Just go to lendit.com to register. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome Johnny Reich. He is the CEO and co-founder of Quill. Now, Quill's a fascinating company. They haven't been around that long, but they're starting to get traction, and their business is all around providing advances for gig economy workers, typically freelancers, small businesses. They provide an advance so these people and companies can get paid immediately. So we go into that process in some depth, and we talk about how they underwrite, how they, you know, the, the kinds of markets they're in. We talk about the performance of, of the advances, and we talk also about the the challenges of you know that gig economy workers face in today's economy in today's financial system it was a fascinating interview i hope you enjoy the show welcome to the podcast johnny thanks peter it's wonderful to be here thanks for having me my pleasure so i like to get these things started by giving the listeners uh, a little bit of background about yourself and and uh, and what you've done in your career to date awesome yeah let's see uh, I grew up in a town called Fresno in the middle of California. I went to UCLA for undergrad and then UC Davis for law school and took my first uh, legal job in San Francisco. And at, this was at a firm called Kirkland & Ellis in 2008 or so. So right as 2008 was my summer associate job and 2009 was when I started. But I uh, got to see a lot of really interesting things happen at that time, as you can mm-hmm. imagine, um, especially centered around the financial markets. And it, it was a really interesting way to get exposure to, to finance in general, because we were sort of helping unwind a lot of some of the, um, the issues that had happened in the market around derivatives. I was an M&A lawyer that there wasn't a lot of deal flow, so I was helping out with a lot of bankruptcies and the like, and really got to see you know, what things about the market had precipitated the, the decline and ultimate crash, um, and what factors kind of led to that. So I, I did M&A for about five years, and then I decided that my heart wasn't in it. And part of this was from working on a deal where I really I really worked with and advised mm-hmm. on you know, some phenomenal founder teams, both sell-side and buy-side M&A. And I always gravitated towards the mission of the company. And in one deal in particular, you know, the founders were so passionate about what they were building that uh, they walked away from a very significant amount of money to go with a lower bidder on the deal because uh, they didn't agree with the deal terms uh, solely on the basis of a disagreement of the deal terms. And that that was kind of a formative moment for me in realizing that I I was looking for a similar path where I felt so strongly about something that. I could sacrifice a pretty significant amount of, of personal wealth, uh, mm-hmm. in furtherance of my ideal. And I think I, 
I spent about another four months as an M&A attorney at that point before I landed a job at a client, actually, which was in the Bitcoin space, a company called Zappo run by a phenomenal fintech entrepreneur, Wences Casades. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really got my exposure to how the credit system works, um, aside from what happened in 2008 and 2009, but how the credit system works in markets where there aren't you know, stable banking systems or stable payment rails and payroll departments and, and all the things that we kind of take for granted here in the U.S., which, which work pretty well. And I was fortunate for that experience because, you know, I'd found a, a founder that was very passionate about what he was doing because he was trying to solve his own problem. And his problem uh, was that while growing up in Argentina, Wences had encountered numerous points in time where currency controls and the devaluation of the peso essentially meant that he and his family, friends, et cetera, uh, lost all their, their wealth, all their money, really because of the, the doings of, of a, a central government. And so I got the bug on financial inclusion through, through Wences and Zappo and then ultimately helped build, you know, uh, the early days of the Bitcoin ecosystem with some strategic initiatives and some regulatory outreach before uh, encountering the pain point that uh, that Quill currently solves, uh, mm-hmm. which was my own run-in with, with our financial system in the U.S. So I like to call myself a recovering M&A attorney that learned about the credit system by seeing it essentially at its worst and, right. then, and then coming in from the, this, the disruptor side Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Through so, the Bitcoin angle, right? So then, why don't you let's go back then and, and talk? What was I, I've heard? I've, I've read about this before. Tell us a little bit about the, the moment that led to the idea for Quill. Absolutely, uh, this is you know really it's fear. I I felt visceral, palpable fear, and I'll talk about what I mean by that in a second. When you know going through my professional career as an M and A attorney. You know, growing up, I was, uh, at, my parents were not wealthy, but, you know, we never had concerns about, you know, could we afford our house payment and the like. And so I, I, I was very insulated, frankly. But when I left M&A and when I was making far less money, I, I ended up freelancing quite a bit to help supplement my income. And uh, there was one month where a client of mine didn't pay on time. And as a result, I was going to be, you know, I had a mortgage payment due and not enough cash in my bank account. So I had five days or so before I was basically going to default on my mortgage and not, I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know, I'd never had anything like that happen. I just knew it was really bad. And as sort of the days go by and no payments coming in, this level of fear and anxiety continues to rise. And it's this you know, very physical sensation of that you get when you're nervous, anxious, whether you know you're about to jump out of the plane skydiving or you're walking on a you know in a bad neighborhood late at night. Um, you know, we all know what that feeling feels like. And this feeling that I had as I got closer and closer to that date where my mortgage was about to be, you know, the payment was going to be auto debited from my account, I was just living with that feeling constantly. And so I finally went to my bank and I, I go speak with, you know, the, I've, you know, I have relationships with these people. They've known me and helped me with financial products for, 
you know, basically from when I graduated law school. And I, I go speak to uh, my team over there, tell them the situation, great client, you know, they're going to pay. I, I don't know why they haven't paid, but they always pay. Uh, they're very high credit and walk through all the different products they have with me. So my car loan at that time, my my mortgage at that time, they see every student loan payment I've ever made that I've made. You know, they have all my financial info. And, you know, I, I ask, hey, what can we do about this? I'm really scared. And the response I got was uh, that I should go look into payday loans <laughs> or borrow money from friends. And unfortunately, Johnny, we're not we're not your friends in this case. And I I can't tell you how how disappointed, scared, frustrated. I mean, it was such a big mix of, of feelings in that moment. And I, I just felt very much left out in the cold. And what's what was confounding to me ultimately when I got over my emotional response to this was they were in the best position to give me some kind of financial product. They knew everything about me and something wasn't matching up with that, that narrative in my head mm-hmm. of great FICO score, great credit history, tons of financial products with this institution, you know, real problem, but can't do anything about it. Like they had a real opportunity to actually make some very low risk cash in that situation and, and they didn't take it. So I started to really think about that and realized that, you know, as a freelancer, as a small business owner, as you're sitting in our credit system in a bucket that's very difficult for our credit system to underwrite, or there is no underwriting guidance for it, or it doesn't make economic sense because, you know, the the dollar amount is so low, the credit system we live in that provides mortgages and car loans and whatnot really, really nicely for M&A lawyers doesn't really do anything for freelancers and and small business owners mm-hmm. and started diving into why that is. And, you know, just from that one, you know, innocent little question of why did this happen to me? Uh, me and my co-founders realized that one, I, I wasn't the only one, uh, but also there were, you know, there's a massive need and opportunity to really provide a lot of value and help to, to these, uh, these populations of folks that are, Similarly situated as I was at that moment, right? So then let's let, let's just move on then to to explaining what what actually Quill does. What is what is your offering? Quill helps freelancers and SMBs get a payment that would be otherwise paid, let's say, in thirty days. We give it to them today, and we do this by selling into the places that freelancers and SMBs are are working for. So, if you work for a large Fortune five hundred company. And that Fortune 500 company has Quill available when there's a payment that that Fortune 500 company is going to pay you in 30 days. Quill finds the data around that payment being out at that time, mm-hmm. sends the, the individual that's going to get paid in 30 days an email saying, congrats, you're going to get paid in 30 days. And if you'd like to get paid today, we'll give it to you for, on average, it's about a 3% fee uh, that's just taken off. So if it was going to be 100 bucks, we would say you can get paid 97 today. And it's really that simple. No fee if they don't do anything and they don't want to take the fee, the, the funds early. Uh, and a small fee that doesn't bear any interest uh, if they want to take the, the funds today. Okay. So then let's give, let's maybe give some examples of some of the, the places that, that offer Quill. And so 
maybe some of the, some of the different uh, verticals that you're in. Why don't you give us some examples? Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked. You know, as you know, in my situation at that moment, uh, I was amidst and I self-identified as a freelancer. And so one of our earliest set of partnerships was with freelancer marketplaces. And I don't know if I'm allowed to name anyone, but, you know, we work with all across the, the realm of skill sets. So uh, we have folks that are drone pilots and work for drone marketplaces. We have folks that are delivery drivers and work for driver marketplaces, software engineers that are freelancing and, you know, those types of freelancer marketplaces and design, et cetera. So we really cover a range of skill sets and, you know, anyone that's uh, a freelancer in those, one of those marketplaces that we cover every single time they have any payment that's, that's been approved, it's going to come to them in the form of, Hey, you can get paid today if you want, or we'll just push funds through to you on day 60 as well and, uh, and incur no fee. And then we started to apply that model. We, we found a lot of one, we had a lot of success with that and we realized that actually a lot of the volume that we have isn't from people like me that are looking to avoid a bad situation. It's freelancers and agencies, SMBs, et cetera, that they're using the capital to grow their business. Mm-hmm. And so we started to identify the verticals that would, would similarly sort of follow that narrative because we, we really like the story of if you take a dollar from Quill that's you know going to get 30 days, going to be 30 days earlier than when you otherwise would get paid, you'll actually make more money. Then that's, that's a wonderful story. Right. So we started to go into digital media marketplaces. So app developers and um, really anyone operating in these sort of publisher networks like the Apple App Store, or Google Play are, are very well-known examples and realized that, you know, these small businesses are so sophisticated from a marketing perspective that the same kind of rules apply if we advance them a dollar that they would otherwise get paid in 60 days by Apple, they're going to make much more than, you know, the fee they paid on that dollar by deploying that dollar today. Right. So that, that's another area where, uh, where we've been quite successful. Right. And then we have a final vertical that we just broadly refer to as liquidity as a service because we've been able to drop it into a, a bunch of different contexts. But really where you have any B2B payments ecosystem or, you know, ecosystem where you're, there's a technology solution that's facilitating either the exchange between a business and another business or freelancer, the payment flow between a business and another business or freelancer, we can, you know, basically let that ecosystem leverage our tech. They can continue to do what they're doing well. And we offer liquidity to that ecosystem broadly as just a part of their baked in offering. And so that's our, our liquidity as a service thing. And we've done that with ERPs, uh, payment networks, invoicing networks, big vendor and supplier networks. Those are sort of examples of, okay. of things we've done that in. So then, so really, it's, it's still all of those things. Though it all boils down to, sounds like it's just it's one product. It's it's providing you know an advance on a on an invoice or future future earnings. So yep. just just so unclear though, if you're just say you're an independent contractor like like you described in your in your situation with your mortgage payment, you're an independent contractor and you've got some yep. random random company that you may have never heard of. Can you still get financing there, or do you really need to be hooked into to the the, the corporation providing? invoices yeah we have to be hooked in for now and we do have plans to expand that especially with 
you know, we get a ton of recurring use. It, in fact, it's it's staggeringly high. And so, you know, we've built up relationships with a lot of the, the folks that are you know, using this as a new source of working capital. And, you know, in the future, we'll we'll definitely have options for going outside of our you know, immediate ecosystem. But for now, yeah, you do have to be working with a company or, or platform that that Quill is embedded into. Right, right. Okay. And so then what are the dollar amounts that you're typically doing and what, what's sort of the range and the average of the, the dollar amounts you're advancing? It's about $1,000. And the beauty of the technology is that by essentially going from the top down, we've cut out a lot of the costs that are associated with underwriting or right. acquiring, you know, mm-hmm. a given customer. And so that means that we can we can do a ten dollar advance or we can do a million dollar advance. Ultimately, you know, our machine and the way that that we underwrite and manage risk and match, you know, the advance with the lender that's actually providing the funding, that can be hyper efficient so that we can do tiny, tiny advances or, or very large ones. Right. Right. So then, so you, you've got someone that like you're embedded in with, with a company. There's someone who comes on and says, right, I'm whatever it is. Let's use an example. I don't know whether it's, whether it's actually your client, but you know, whether, you know, say it's a Lyft or Uber driver comes in and says, right, I've, I've, I want to get my pay now. And, and you're hooked into them. What, what actual underwriting do you do? Do you just, cause if you're hooked into that company, wouldn't you, maybe you just tell me what, what kind of underwriting you do? Yeah, it depends. We could be underwriting a bunch of people. We could be underwriting a bunch of companies. So in the, the Uber scenario, we would probably be underwriting Uber mm-hmm. and and the driver on, you know, do they have a high dispute rate? Is the, the ride likely to ultimately come back and say that, you know, the driver was driving like a maniac and they want their money back? And let's take another example where let's say we have, you know, a designer that is is going to be doing some work on behalf of a staffing firm that is has a client that's a Fortune 500 company. The Fortune 500 company is ultimately the one that's you know paying for the invoice. The the designer is the one providing the services. The staffing firm is kind of making the market. We might underwrite everybody to get to the ultimate decision, and it happens very quickly, obviously. But to make the ultimate decision about price uh, and try and get the the best price to the the freelancer in that scenario, we'll go to as many counterparties as we possibly can to, to get comfortable there. Mm-hmm. And then once the company then pays you, instead of paying you know, the person who earned the money, is that is that how it works? That's right. We are typically in the funds flow and we'll get paid back first. And then if there's, let's say, you know, our designer did, they're going to get $100 in 30 days and they decide, okay, I want to take an advance inclusive of the fee on half of the amount. So they take 50. Mm-hmm. We would get the $100 payment from whoever the staffing firm client is or the staffing firm directly. And then we would just pass through uh, whatever the remainder is to the designer. Okay. So then I'm curious because these, one of the great things about, about this business, now you, you've, you've, you haven't been in business that long, but you, these are really short term duration. You know, types of advances, so you can get a pretty good idea how you're doing. I mean, you've had many, many turns on your on your book, uh, even if you've only been doing it a couple of years. So, tell us a bit about the performance of of your portfolio. Yeah, I mean, we've. I'll talk about the turn first. <laughs> Initially, we were it was you know average seven days or something, and then as we've worked with more sort of high end freelance and and SMBs, 
the counterparty risk gets better, but mm-hmm. the, the payment terms get worse. So it's sort of counterintuitive, but you've made it, you know, as a designer, you just landed that, that contract to do design work with Apple. But then you find out that Apple pays you, you know, <laughs> 90 plus days in the future. So as we've worked with more counterparties like that, what initially started out as, as a week uh, has trended to more like 30, 35 days. Mm-hmm. And we assume that it, it may land somewhere more like 45 or, or 60 ultimately. But the the risk model and how we underwrite has performed very, very well. And we've had nominal defaults uh, across the entire book and have been able to provide very competitive pricing for you know, the, the freelancers and SMBs that are taking our offering such that you know we ultimately end up being usually less than what a freelancer or SMB would, would have to pay to accept a credit card payment or use a, a, a payment processing platform. So mm-hmm. that's been great. And the fact that we do have fast turning stuff and we are leveraging sophisticated underwriting to, to minimize risk on on default, it just ultimately means that we can push the best pricing back to our SMEs and freelancers. Right, right, got it. So then, can you give us some sense of the the scale that you're at today? Totally. Let's see. So, from a headcount perspective, because I, I think this is really interesting, we started last year with about seven people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 2018, and last year alone, uh, we advanced 70 million dollars to freelancers all over the world. And we're, we're now about 25 and growing quickly from a headcount perspective and on pace to do a very large multiple of, of what we did last year. So we're very much, we're still lean and mean. We're still leveraging tech in all the right ways to, to grow as quickly as possible and retain as, as little headcount as possible, but also in the process of expanding headcount and well, not to you know make sure that we can deliver the best product to our our global SMBs and freelancers. Right. So then, you know, I, I read somewhere that when you were starting Quill, that you you were turned down by investors, you know, more than a hundred times. And <laughs> uh, you know, when you initially raising money, and I know I know we got we got introduced through Ron Suber, who um, pretty much every listener here would know, and um, he's I know he's he's involved in your business, but. Maybe you could tell us how you got over that hump and, and you know, who are, who are your investors? Absolutely. You know, it's funny when you're first starting, everything takes longer. Uh, and then, you know, I, w- I woke up last week and we were featured in uh, Fast Companies, you know, most innovative companies. Mm-hmm. And everything moves way, way faster now. But, you know, going back to that initial seed round that we raised, Man, that was brutal. You know, I, I knew that we were onto something big. I knew that our ability to make an impact uh, in a way that would keep me excited and interested, uh, you know, effectively were, you know, I'm kind of selfishly trying to solve the problem and the fear that, that I felt when I, when I couldn't get help, right? But I knew that this was something I wanted to do and devote a lot of my life to so that, you know, the, 300 million or so freelancers like myself at that time and countless, you know, SMBs don't have to have that problem. We were going to need venture funding to do this in the right way. Mm-hmm. FinTech companies are hard. You know, we're, we're sending payments all over the place. We're advancing money out that is, you know, from the capital markets and from our lending partners. 
And doing that as a small business or something less than a technology company is very tough. And so it, it was very obvious that we we're going to go for VC dollars. That said, I'm a first time founder. I uh, had, you know, previously was a lawyer and had worked in Bitcoin. Like there were all these reasons why, you know, I, I didn't know anyone in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. that was going to really back us at that time. So I had to do, yeah, I, say a hundred, but it has to be more, frankly. And just to get the word out about what we were doing. Right. And then all the reasons why, you know, you wouldn't back a first time founder come in. And so ultimately we had to do tons and tons of meetings just to bring in, you know, the first 500 K or so that came in through plug and play and 500 startups. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it gets incrementally easier after that. And then it, it, it starts to move much faster, but yeah, it was a slog. It was really, really tough. And until we got the anchors from plug and play and 500, I was basically just doing meetings as my full-time job and getting told no a lot. <laughs> right. That's got to be, you've um, got, you've got to have the vision there because that can be very demoralizing. It was, man, even, you know, I, I had full conviction that, you know, I, I was seeing something, me and my co-founders were seeing something that the market just had not yet seen and, and was not capable of seeing because not everybody has, has felt this fear in the pit of their, their, their stomach right. about, you know, how am I going to make my, my mortgage payment? But it, it was tough. It was really hard. But mm-hmm. then as we ended up finding, I'm glad I did that because it introduced me to a ton of really helpful people. You know, the, the team, Alareza and Mazur and, and his team at Plug and Play Ventures and Shilma Note and his team over at 500, uh, which Peter, I think is how we initially got connected, mm-hmm. have been you know, incredibly helpful throughout the life cycle of the company and have become personal friends of mine. So ultimately we got a series A done, you know, about a year and a half or so after we did that first seed round and have done a bunch of deck deals and have brought in amazing investors like Ron Suber and Sam Hodges from Funding Circle. So I, I'm very thankful, but yeah, it, it definitely was hard at the, at the, the beginning. Right. Okay, so then when you sort of look at what you're doing, I mean, it seems to me that there's there's sort of there's a lot of people doing obviously factoring or invoice finance of some for some are doing it online and some are doing it in you know in like for app developers in in different niches. But when you when you look at your business, who do you see as your main competitors? Yeah, I get that question a lot, and. There are, as you mentioned, as you mentioned, there are a lot of folks that do something similar. And I don't view us as competitive with a traditional invoice factoring company. I, I would actually view us as a complimentary offering where, you know, if you get the email from us that says, Hey, get paid now or get paid 60 days later when, you know, the company finally pays you, the small business that might use Bluevine or Funbox or, or, or someone else to factor their invoice, they could also use us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just, we've applied a, an approach to customer acquisition where we can really leverage technology to embed in an ecosystem and, you know, be alongside all these other offerings. So there really aren't a lot of folks that are, that I view as just like us, though there are good examples of folks that, that offer sort of parallel services. And, you know, ClearBank does advances to Airbnb hosts and daily pay does advances to uh, to freelancers and employees, and Earnin does advances for employees on 
you know, before the, the payroll runs. And, uh, you know, yeah, those are kind of the folks that I would, I would put in the same bucket as us, but our, the, our approach is novel and our use of technology and how we leverage technology is novel. Right, right. So it sounds like you've really, I mean, you've focused on the, I guess the, I mean, maybe you know, it seems like the gig economy workers, uh, uh, seems to me like where you have really focused your, your energy and that's sort of your primary market. And it's, it's interesting because I mean, it seems like when I look around, I see it's, it's, it's massive and getting bigger. And people now talk about the fact that, you know, this is a whole shift in the way people earn a living and some people are going to be earning a living as gig economy workers for their entire career and they may have two or three jobs but it just doesn't seem like that people like they need that there's not someone helping them along the way like you hear you know i hear things like uber are providing quicker advances down the you know they, they could be there are certain these companies providing quicker advances but you know it seems that the gig economy worker has kind of from financial services perspective, they have, they have been, they are now underserved, it feels like, and they're, they're mm-hmm. becoming the largest segment. Why do you think that, is it just because companies move too slowly? Why do you think these gig economy workers are underserved? Well, there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, this is a massive paradigm shift. And, you know, by 2027, we'll have over half of the workforce that's working freelance. And that doesn't even count. Uh, account for the SMB population of, you know, newly minted small businesses that in my mind serve as the backbone of the business economy. Everybody has to start somewhere. And so, yeah, it's, it's a big problem. And I, I think on the free, the pure freelancer or, or contractor or however you define that term, because, you know, everybody self identifies a little bit differently. But, you know, we're talking about you know, revamping a payroll process that has been, you know, embedded deeply since, you know, before the 50s when folks stayed at their same job at, you know, if you're, if you're really, really lucky, you know, GE or something similar for your entire career and then you retire rich with a pension. Well, that paradigm is shifting and the, the infrastructure around it is not. Mm-hmm. And these are deeply embedded companies that have, you know, long-standing histories and not a lot of incentive to to really switch and accommodate a small-dollar, much higher-frequency type of existence in the form of your your gig economy, your freelance contractor, et cetera, worker. So I think that's one reason. And there's also just a lag in um, the awareness from the financial services standpoint. Companies know this. Companies understand that to be strategic, to be competitive in the marketplace right now, you have to have, and it's called contingent workforce strategy. That means you have to be able to supplement your existing workforce with the entire range of the talent spectrum in the form of folks that are willing to freelance, you know, basically at a moment's notice or that you're able to actually acquire and, you know, get the right freelancer to work on whatever your discrete sort of security job might be or something like that, where like the best folks in the industry actually will never work for you full time. They're going to be freelance. Mm -hmm. So companies get this, but financial services, I I think there's always a lag on that, on innovation on these fronts. Uh, And I, I I guess financial services have passed there because there should be moving, uh, (laughs) you know, large amounts of money into like (laughs) new novel stuff might be bad, you know, macroeconomically or systemically. 
And so I, I think that's one of the reasons, but I'm, I'm sure there are a host of others that, that I'm, I'm missing. But either way, there's definitely a massive opportunity for for startups and founders, especially if you've had the pain point and you can weather the storm of getting rejected a hundred times, <laughs> it may ultimately be very much worth it. Right, right. Well, we're out of time, but before I let you go, just uh, like to get some insight into what this year holds. What are some of your goals for 2019? Absolutely. I mean, my high level goal is to just continue to solve this problem and to expand our impact in just the number of people that, that we can help. You know, we're not quite at 100,000 of SMBs and freelancers that we've made it advanced to, but getting there pretty quickly. And I'd like to get that number as high as possible in addition to just sheer dollar volume of, of folks that we can help. And then obviously the sort of the, the final bit of that is to make sure that we're embedding ourselves in, into new platforms and channels that are springing up all, all over the place, uh, whether it's you know, a gig platform or a freelancer workforce platform or an invoicing platform, you know, the more of these things that we can embed ourselves in, the more people that uh, get to benefit from our service. Right. Okay, Johnny, we'll have to leave it there. It's it's a fascinating story and I uh, wish you all the very best. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Peter, so much for having me and I'm um, looking forward to seeing you at LendIt. Yep, likewise. Okay, thanks, Johnny. See ya. You know, companies like Quill are taking an age-old problem and bringing it into the new world. And the reality is gig economy workers, they want to be paid immediately. They don't want to have to wait 30, 45, 60 days to be paid. And you know, when you're looking at just a, you know, like a 3% average fee, for them, that's, that's, that's not going to be too high price of pay, I don't think, in many cases, where they can, they can get their money, they can either put it to work in their business again, or they can you know, make, make their mortgage payment or whatever it, ha- whatever it means. Because you know, we're living now in this on-demand world, and this sort of 30, 45, 60-day payment cycle, is just, it just doesn't gel with the modern world, which is why I think companies like Quill have, have a lot of runway to go because they are providing you know this on demand an on demand payment in an on demand world and it really feels like that is what consumers want that's what these these freelancers want and you know i think i, I see a lot of room for a company like quill to grow anyway on that note i will sign off i very much appreciate you listening and i'll catch you next time bye Today's episode was sponsored by Lendit Fintech USA 2019, the world's leading event in financial services innovation. It's happening April 8th through 9th at Moscone West in San Francisco. It's going to be the largest fintech event held in the Bay Area in 2019. We'll be covering online lending, blockchain, digital banking, and much more. You can find out all about it and register at lendit.com.